This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Michael presented to me in the clinic last week, complaining of pain in his groin and buttock that had come on relatively recently. He worked in a job that required a lot of lifting and manual handling, and he wondered if his occupation may have had something to do with it. He was finding it increasingly difficult to get in and out of a car, to lie on the side that was painful at nighttime. And sexual activity also made the pain in his groin worse. He tried a couple of over-the-counter remedies, but without much success. He actually had pretty good health literacy, and he'd done a lot of his own exploration of various aspects of osteoarthritis, including looking at why he might have developed this its prognosis, and also a variety of management options. But most of them seem to be related to the knee as opposed to hip osteoarthritis. And he wanted to better understand, firstly, why he had this problem, what the prognosis was likely to be, and most importantly, what he could do about it. And we know that hip and knee osteoarthritis are leading causes of disability globally. But unfortunately, today, most osteoarthritis research is focused on the knee and less so on hip and other joint osteoarthritis. Although both the knee and the hip are joints in the leg, there are really important differences in the prevalence of the disease, the outcomes and recommended treatments. Hello, it's David Hunter. And in this episode of Joint Action, we're joined by Dr. Michelle Hall to discuss the differences between hip and knee osteoarthritis. Hello, Michelle, and welcome to the show. Hi, David, and thanks very much for having me. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Um, it's a good chance for us to catch up. It's been a while, and now that you're in Ireland, it may even be a longer while between now and when we next see each other. 
before we digress too far, can you just share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day looks like? Sure. I started out as an exercise scientist, so I did the exercise science in Dublin and got an interest in osteoarthritis in my final year project. And from there, went over to America to do a master's in kinesiology, focusing on gait analysis and gait biomechanics in people at risk of developing osteoarthritis of the knee after ACL injury. And then went to Australia, Melbourne, I had to complete a PhD Kim and Rana in Centre of Health Exercise Sports Medicine. And I've been there for over 11 years and recently came back to Ireland to take up a position for two years at University College Dublin to engage in some basic science research into pain mechanisms. Wonderful. So it sounds both in terms of having a world tour, but also sounds like you've got quite varied expertise, presumably based upon the various things you picked up along the way. I'd say very interest more than expertise, but we'll see what your listeners think. <laughs> uh, I'm sure I'm sure you're going to be an expert in my eyes. So I think everybody out there will hopefully appreciate all that you're going to say. When you're not at work, what do you like to do? I know you've got a couple of little kids and I would imagine they occupy a little bit of your time, but what, what do you like to do? Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> well, we have a six-month-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. So a lot of time is with those two at the moment. But when we're not at work and we're not we're around the house, we, we do like to get outside outside for walks. So then that is one thing that we said when we returned to Ireland here for two years or so, that um, you know once a month we get out somewhere different for a nice walk. So we've done three out of three so far, so we're, we're doing well. Superb. And if you had to recommend a particular place to go walking in Ireland, what would be your favourite spot? That's really hard, but I think the most impressive one at the moment was up in Loch Esk in County Donegal. It really was spectacular. It was wow, wow, wow. Excellent. I'll have to put that on the roadmap and do that in the not too distant future. It's a little bit of a detour and you may not get much Wi-Fi out there, so take a map too. <laughs> Good advice. Now, Michelle, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? I would like to think that I am kind. I am a hard worker. I have an open mind. Maybe a little too risk adverse and trying to work on that a little bit. But yeah. And so I've just got to explore that a little bit further. But when you say <laughs> risk averse, you don't like jumping out of planes or off bridges or what, what, what's, what risks are you planning to avoid? <laughs> well, you know, funny, I did do jump off a plane in New Zealand in your country one time and it was amazing, but I'd never do that again. That was daft. <laughs> I think, that, I don't know, sometimes the older you get, the more scared you get about the things that could happen. So, you know, you got to. Take each day as it comes. Is this getting worse now that you've got two little dependents that you're meant to be looking after? I think that's the heightened sense, yes, of late, yes. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Now, obviously, the topic at hand today is really talking and digging into a little bit more about hip osteoarthritis and particularly differences that it might have from knee osteoarthritis. Let's start with just how common these problems are. So, Hip osteoarthritis, how, how prevalent is it? Is, and is that different between men and women? And how does that compare to knee osteoarthritis? 
Yeah. Well, we think hip osteoarthritis affects around 10% of the population, and that's based on symptoms, how patient feels, and also what the joint looks like on an image. And perhaps the prevalence is a little bit higher with knee osteoarthritis. Now, it depends whether you use an x-ray or not to give a diagnosis. Those estimates are probably a little bit low if we use the x-ray. With regards to uh, gender or sex, it seems that, you know, knee osteoarthritis affects more women than men, but it seems that hip osteoarthritis is quite comparable as affects the similar amount of men and women. And these are things we, we don't know yet why this happens. So it sounds obviously like it's an incredibly common problem. And the reasons presumably for the gender differences in knee osteoarthritis, there's some theories, but for hip osteoarthritis, the fact that they're similar between men and women presumably is unexplained? Yes, it really is. You know, maybe there's some insights that we get into in genetics. You know, we talk to our experts in those fields, maybe they can provide some insights, but really we're quite unsure why or how the osteoarthritis and hip osteoarthritis affects different proportions of genders differently. Well, that's obviously research to be done, whether that be in Ireland, Australia or elsewhere. Um, now, <laughs> Just thinking about why people might get this in the first place. So you've obviously done a little bit of work looking at the risk factors as to why people might develop hip osteoarthritis and how that differs from knees. What are they for hips and how does that differ from knee osteoarthritis? I suppose one of the things that I would like to maybe just say early in this piece, David, is that there's a lot less research done at the hip than at the knee. So sometimes when, you know, we see something or we read something about the knee, but it's not there in the hip, it's not necessarily that it doesn't exist in the hip, but it's just not known whether it is there because there's less research. So I think that's really important to keep in mind as we go through the comparisons and maybe similarities between hip and knee osteoarthritis. But with that, there's a lot more known about risk factors for knee osteoarthritis than there is hip. But one of the biggest differences, perhaps, is the shape of the joint for hip osteoarthritis. It seems to be a very potent risk factor for the development of hip osteoarthritis later in life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and obviously we can expand a bit on that shape, but there's some theories out there that probably remain to be expanded upon, suggesting that those shape differences at the junction between the head and neck of the femur and the acetabulum might account for about up to 90% of a person's likelihood of developing hip osteoarthritis. And while shape contributes at the knee, it's substantially less than that. I think another important difference, and potentially it's, as you mentioned before, underexplored in comparison with the knee, is that at least for knee osteoarthritis, the leading risk factor is people being above a healthy weight. But it doesn't appear to be as potent for the hip. Is that is that fair? And do you have any thoughts as to why that might be the case? I would definitely think that's a fair observation, you know, of the literature. Do I have any thoughts why? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. I guess the only, you know, along the lines of that is osteoarthritis also affects our hand and our wrist. And, you know, it could be these systemic factors. It's not only a biomechanical implication, but also systemic. So it's a probably a systemic role in it and the plays in with the knee but for some unknown reason it doesn't seem to be as strong certainly as a risk factor for hip osteoarthritis and it might be something to do with this pure speculation but the reports of how pain is described you know people with hip osteoarthritis tend to report 
quite severe pain. You know, they've used words like uh, ice pick, childbirth, you know, very severe pain relative to what people would describe their knee pain. And maybe those have some sort of implications in when patients go to seek help. We know people with hip osteoarthritis tend to seek help earlier than knee osteoarthritis from the onset of their symptoms. And you know, maybe there's some areas to explore in their differences in perceptions of pain. Yeah, no, it's a re- really important point. Just while, while we're talking about risk factors, I mean, it's probably important for people to think about a framework for what those risk factors might look like. And sometimes we use what's called a, a joint level or local risk factor and compare that to a person level risk factor. And so those person level risk factors are things like age, sex, body weight, genetics, occupation, and, and diet. And the local risk factors or as Michelle's saying, things like the local joint shape or the function of the muscles in and around the joint. Now, you started getting into it, but let's explore that a little bit further in terms of how this presents. And just, you know, if you can, talk a little bit more about those characteristics of pain and how you might diagnose osteoarthritis. And again, I think just expand a little bit further on the average age that patients present seems to be a little bit earlier than knees as well. Yes. So patients with hip osteoarthritis would come in with the difficulty of tasks, similar to knee osteoarthritis, but one key difference it might be things like putting on socks. They have got problems putting on their socks. We notice that patients with knee osteoarthritis typically present with the report of instability or buckling of the knee, whereas that doesn't seem to be a key part in the diagnosis of hip osteoarthritis. And that's likely due to the shape of the joint. You know, they're quite different with respect to how they are stabilized. And the other difference is range of motion. So hip range of motion, it seems to be a key factor in clinical diagnosis where range of motion is not so important in giving a diagnosis of knee osteoarthritis. So those are probably the biggest differences that we would see in comparison with how hip and knee osteoarthritis are diagnosed. No, fantastic, fantastic. And, you know, I, I think as you were alluding to before, the average age in a person with hip osteoarthritis tends to be a little bit on the younger side compared with knee osteoarthritis. So I think in at least one cohort that you were talking about, I think the average age was 60 as opposed to 66 when you compare hip to knee osteoarthritis. And it appears to be a shorter duration of symptoms before they present. Just digging a little bit further into some of the more common complaints that a person might present with. I mean, as I think you alluded to, people with knee osteoarthritis might complain more of pain related to certain activities. Are there things that people with hip osteoarthritis might complain of when they're doing particular things? I think difficulty getting in and out of car more so than people with knee problems. And as I said before, I think socks is actually quite a big one. You know, when we had people in the lab doing assessments, ask them to do that, it really got most people, they would experience pain doing that. And that was a real sort of telltale sign for us that, yes, that is likely to be hip osteoarthritis. Yeah. And another common complaint, just expanding upon that, is when a person lies on the side, uh, so on that particular side, it may be more problematic. And sometimes people also complain of groin pain with specific activities, as you mentioned, like getting in and out of a car or getting their shoes and socks on. But I think another activity that oftentimes people with hip osteoarthritis complain is problematic is that of sexual activity. And I think it's something that I really want people to recognize as a problem so that that way they can have that conversation with a health professional about what they can do about it. 
Don't just ignore it and live in silence. All right. Now, prognosis. So what's the typical outcome for people that have hip osteoarthritis? Yeah, many people can self-manage and that's, you know, our aim is you know, health professionals to empower people to do is to self-manage their condition with the tools that we can provide them. And generally, you know, over 10 years, absolutely, there are fluctuations in pain and nobody's, you know, people can experience very severe episodes of more pain. Generally, they pass and only a few will actually go on to have a joint replacement. But the difference is where we really see in hip osteoarthritis is that more patients tend to opt for a joint replacement earlier than knee osteoarthritis. We see more males undergoing hip joint replacement than females, and they tend to be of lower body mass. And that's what it speaks to earlier, what we said about the systemic risk factors for the condition. So they all sort of tie in to give that overall picture about patients who tend to undergo the last option of what we would say is surgical intervention. I think it's important to note that, again, we don't really know why more people offer joint replacement. It might be that there are very high levels of satisfaction rates with replacements, maybe relative to knee replacements. But it should also be noted that more people require joint revision, you know, second surgery on that hip compared to people with knee osteoarthritis. Really, really important point. So let's just dig into that a little bit further. Now, one really important point that you made early on is that there's a lot less research, and that includes trials being done on hip osteoarthritis than is for knees. And a lot of the guidelines, at least historically, have extrapolated from knee osteoarthritis to the hip. And potentially, inappropriately, in an ideal world, we'd have evidence more specifically locally being generated for hip osteoarthritis than just extrapolating from the knee to that area. Now, you've made some really good observations in the work that you've done about the fact that there's a number of interventions that have applied for hip osteoarthritis that still have reasonably good effects in trials that are specifically targeted towards hip osteoarthritis. Do you want to just expand a little bit further on what those interventions might be before we get and talk a little bit further about the joint replacement. Sure, sure. Well, what we would hope that everybody who presents to the healthcare professional gets what we call the core treatment guidelines, and that's education, weight loss for those who need it, and exercise. Now, in hip osteoarthritis, we do have good evidence to say we can reasonably expect people to have good improvements with exercise. And there's data from a very large study over in Denmark to suggest that similar improvements are very comparable between people who have a hip or knee osteoarthritis. And that's something we haven't touched upon is that many people who have hip osteoarthritis also have problems with their knee and vice versa. We often treat these in isolation when we do research because it's easier for us to do, but in real life, we know that that's certainly not the case. So I think that's also important to remember. But Anybody who does experience chronic joint pain really should seek help to engage in regular exercise. And the type of exercise that is recommended, most of the research comes from strengthening exercises. But there'd be good theory, at least, to say that any type of aerobic exercise, anything that gets your heart rate, would address the role of systemic factors on your condition. As I said, there's a lot less research done at the hip than the knee. There's maybe some speculation that improvements are not as good at the hip compared to the knee, but I think we haven't really answered that properly in the research world. 
Yeah. And obviously there's some other trials that you've alluded to there that speak to the benefits of mind-body programs, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, and also some pharmacologic interventions there, in particular the use of anti-inflammatory medications. Now, as you mentioned, hip surgery appears to happen earlier for people that have hip osteoarthritis than they may do for knee osteoarthritis as far as replacements are concerned. And as you alluded to, the results of hip joint replacement surgery appear to be potentially a little bit better in terms of patient satisfaction and durability. I don't know whether you want to expand on that at all or just leave it at that. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting observation because it's one that sort of, as a research end of it, scratch your head a little bit because if they're both the same condition, why is the satisfaction rates not not similar? You know, why are we not seeing as many people with the osteoarthritis as satisfied with the replacement? And maybe it goes to the underlying features of the disease are quite different at the joints. You know, maybe they are different in terms of the pathophysiology. We know that people with chronic pain have adaptations at the brain and maybe there's differences in between the two conditions and in terms of how the brain processes pain. But I think it's definitely an area of further research to better understand why is it that people, maybe the operations themselves are not as complicated. I don't know. We'd have to talk to the orthopods for that, but I think it is interesting, but it's really important for people who are considering at that stage of the condition, the revision rates, the adverse effects that also are tied to those types of surgeries. Yeah, I mean, I think the anatomic constraints of the hip being a ball and socket joint appear to be more suitable for replacement. At least some of the the older data would suggest that at 10 years post-total hip replacement, more than 95% of implanted hips are still functioning. And it's about 80% at 25 years, which is a hell of a lot better than it is for knee replacement surgery. Anything else that you want to say about differences between hips and knees or any things that you want to allude to in terms of research directions, particularly, I guess, given a lot of the data around hip osteoarthritis appears to be extrapolated from knees? Yeah, I think just as a point of interest uh, is weight loss. You know, weight loss is recommended as a core treatment across all the guidelines across the world for hip and knee osteoarthritis. But it's quite interesting to note that that is one finding that is extrapolated from knee data or people with knee osteoarthritis to hip osteoarthritis. And we actually don't know the effect of weight loss on pain or hip symptoms. Now, of course, if people who are overweight weight loss is going to give you a range of health benefits beyond your hip pain. But I think it's important to know how beneficial it is or how how beneficial we can expect it to be for someone with hip pain. So that's something that we're working on at the moment. And as I say, it's just an example of how we've taken data from knees to hips. Yeah. And potentially, as you've mentioned before, it's an inappropriate extrapolation. In an ideal world, we'd have direct evidence specific for the local joint problem. Excellent. We'll we'll include some links to some of the references that we've alluded to during the course of our conversation. But before we wrap up, just in an effort to probe Michelle Hall a little bit further, if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? I would join the chorus and get people, ask people to move. Being physically active prevents so many chronic health conditions and it not only prevents them but it treats them so I would 
in some way how magic pill get people to move move more yeah no the old exercises medicine adage there's no substitute for being active really is there how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things with your role yeah, I, I like to talk to people, you know, obviously reading, listening to podcasts is a great source of information, <laughs> but you can't be do, uh, speaking to someone, you know, about, about a certain topic. So having conversations with people is probably the most enjoyable way. Well, in addition to hopefully helping the people who listen to the podcast, the reason I do the podcast is also to have a chat to people like you. So <laughs> anyway, Michelle, what's your primary motivation or why do you do what you do? I, I started out being sports mad and into exercise and it sort of I didn't realize how it could converge into osteoarthritis and I have um, my dad and my granddad I saw them all my life with osteoarthritis of the knee and the hip and I don't know how many joint replacements they have had between them and I, I really saw probably firsthand how debilitating and how hard life can be when you live with something like chronic hip pain or chronic knee pain just the frustration in them not to do the things they wanted to do when they wanted to do them, uh, you know, I don't think I'll forget. And being, you know, in a position to maybe in some small way contribute to, to making people's lives a bit better is, yeah. It's a wonderful inherent motivation to have that family background. So I think that makes it a whole lot more personal. Is that a genetic predisposition that they have? Did they do crazy types of football in Ireland? What, what, why, why did they have problems with their knees? There is probably some genetic disposition in that because, you know, my granddad's mum also had very bad, they call them the pains, not labels, but the pains. So there probably is some genetic disposition, no big uh, heroes in terms of sport, probably just more farm life, farm work. And we know that there's also a risk factor for it. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. So Michelle, if you could have a billboard and you can have this in Gaelic or whatever language you prefer that said anything, <laughs> what would it be and why? I think it would be, let's move. Yeah, keep it simple. That's good. Consistent with the previous <laughs> message. It may be the same response for this last question I'm going to ask you, but if there's one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give to people with osteoarthritis, what might it be? Yeah, I really think... Don't mind what you've heard or saw on your x-ray or your image. You know, so it's really, really hard to do. When you've seen an image, it's very hard to put that aside. But don't be fearful that moving will make it worse. You know, that's probably the, the worst thing that we could get across when we show people images is, you know, this fear of people don't want to move. And even I think clinicians are afraid to get people to move because of they've seen the, the images as well. But yeah. Yeah. No, it's a fantastic advice. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, take their images to heart and it dissuades them from being active. You know, they might have heard the bone on bone description or some damage that's occurred in the joint and they think that movement's going to make them worse. But by and large, for most everybody, being more active is usually very helpful. Now, Michelle, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with me this afternoon. Really appreciate you spending time talking about something that is so so incredibly important for everybody who's out there and keep up the great work and hopefully at some point in the not too distant future i'll be across your way or you'll be across ours and we can catch up face to face look forward to it and thanks again very much for having me on so if you have hip osteoarthritis it's important to know that the prognosis 
is generally a favorable one. There are a multitude of different options that are available as far as treatments are concerned. So please be proactive in learning about them and actively pursuing them. An adage that I often use, but is really apt for hip osteoarthritis, as well as anywhere else in the body, is don't take this lying down. Now, we'll provide a couple of references that I'm hoping will be helpful in elaborating on some of what Michelle has explained today. As always, I hope you found this podcast recording useful. And we'd appreciate any feedback that you might have with regards to content. Between now and when I next have an opportunity to speak with you, please do take care of yourself. And if you have the chance, someone else as well. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.